folk, hello and welcome to the Race Formula E podcast, where this week we look back at one of the all-time classic FE races. The series' first time around the full Monaco layout was a massive success, with thrilling races including a last lap pass for the lead, and with the championship leaders Mercedes EQ having a disastrous outing, the result has closed up the title race dramatically. Joining me, Andrew Vandenberg, to make sense of it all by the race's Formula E correspondent Sam Smith, and our special guest, veteran of the first six seasons of Formula E and multiple race winner and now Venturi Deputy Team Principal, Jerome D'Ambrosio. Sam, we'll revert to our normal format this week. Uh, but before I ask you for your recollections of Jerome, just wanted to uh, give him a little shout out, really. Um, in that first season of uh, Formula E, when we were trying to establish this funny new all-electric series, I came across these ideas of doing these local PR stunts that we would get. Uh, some of the drivers involved in. And, and I think it's fair to say some were a little bit more enthusiastic than others, but Jerome was always fair game. And um, whether we were off to the zoo in Moscow or... Jerome, did you come paddleboarding in Miami? You know, you were always uh, one of the crew that really got stuck in. And uh, thank you very much for helping us out. There. Well, it was my pleasure. Uh, thank you guys for uh, for having me. And yes, uh, Andrew, it was, uh, I mean, great memories from from, from that first season. Obviously, being part of a of, of a new championship, I think it was very important for me to uh, to try to contribute not only to obviously to to uh, to my pers- personal and, and and my team's performance back in the day, but to the growth of the championship. So yeah, always uh, I always was very happy to to join you guys for these uh, PR events, and 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 then I think we can all say we had a lot of fun doing it. So it was was a win win. Sam, um, your uh, recollections and thoughts on uh, working with Jerome. Well, yeah, I didn't know Jerome before Formula E, but was obviously aware of his career in the junior formulas and, and briefly in F1 too. Uh, I did know a lot of the guys at Dragon and actually got to know Nigel Beresford uh, quite a bit, who I think everyone's got a lot of uh, time and respect for. And he had a lot of p- positive things to say about Jerome. So that was always a great gauge coming from someone who would work with Paul Tracy, Rick Mears, um, Alan Sir Jr., etc. So I've always found Jerome to be really pleasant to deal with. I think we probably had, you know, maybe a, a one or two testy moments along the way, but he, you know, there were ne- there were never any grudges born, or you know, it was always nice to chat and, and, and get his thoughts. As a driver, he was always somehow underrated. I'm not sure why, but as I wrote last year, he he usually made the absolute maximum of what he had, and to score three Formula E wins against the level of competition he was up against was uh, was pretty impressive to say the least. Thank you. Well, uh, Jerome, it's great to have you with us. Um, but before we talk about the events of Monaco at uh, the weekend, mention there your new role as uh, Deputy Team Principal. Can you explain what that means and why you chose this moment to sort of hang up your helmet and step away from the cockpit? Well, I think, you know, there's, well, to start off, I think there's always a time in, a, in, in one's career, especially as an athlete, where you reach a peak and Whatever that peak for you is, and, and like Sam mentioned, I, I won three races in Formula E. I had some good years, and, and I really felt like uh, the last two years was, you know, what I could achieve, and, and, and that was my peak. Some some win championships, some don't, but I always told myself, once I will identify that I would be at that peak, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to hang on to something that wasn't relevant and where I couldn't better myself and still... Uh, thrive for for better results and i identified that moment you know when 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 the relationship ended with uh, with mahindra last year i i had a bit of time to reflect and i i really thought that you know peak of my career was behind me just behind me 
I was only 34 back in uh, back in uh, you know back in the days uh, a few months ago, and I thought, you know what, I I'm not going to waste years of of my life trying to do something where I don't feel I'm I'm going to be as good or I'm going to be able to achieve any more than what I've achieved so far. Instead, I want to be able to focus on something new, a new challenge. Uh, as I said, I was only 34. I'm only 35. Working life is is really long. Um, my working life post career will be probably longer than my career itself, uh, hopefully. And uh, and so I wanted to, to approach it that way rather than you know than 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 I wouldn't say waste, but then then yeah then then doing something which which I cannot uh, I cannot see uh, or build any 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 longer uh, a future. And that and that was the case. So I I chose to stop. The first person I called was uh, was Susie, and and obviously being being here in Monaco. I wanted to know what you know if there was any opportunity, and and things you know played out pretty pretty um, pretty well in the sense that Susie needed someone in the office every day. Uh, she wasn't in in Monaco every day um, as she was living in, in in the UK, and she needed someone in the office, and 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 it fitted perfectly because I called her and I said, look, I I, I love the sport, I love Formula E, uh, I want to move into into a, you know, different side of the sport, management possibly, and, and is there an opportunity? And, and yeah, and that came across and, and it took two weeks really. And two weeks later, I was joining uh, the team as deputy team principal. Right. Well, um, we'll talk a little bit later about, you know, how that's playing out for you and what happens next. But now let's focus on the, the race that's just happened. Um, Sam, best race of the season to date? And where do you think it ranks on the all-time list? I've thought about this quite a lot over the last few days. And, and honestly, I think it's right up there as one of the best perhaps has a claim to be the best Formula E race, actually. I still, for absolute pot-boiling drama, reckon the Mexico City Prix of 2019 when Degrassi caught Verline and a checkered flag is hard to beat. But but actually, last Saturday at Monaco, it was consistently amazing. I mean, it, you know, the last lap was great too, but there was action throughout it. Um, so there were a couple of incredible overtakes. I mean, most notably Mitch Evans at, at Beau Rivage into Massenet on the Costa, which was pretty extraordinary. And then vice versa as Antonio got his break in just right on the final lap to um, to come out of the tunnel and, and take the win. So I, I have to say pound for pound, I reckon it was probably the best race, especially as you had three of the all-out quickest drivers in the championship going at it hammer to tongs in in that fashion. You know, if, if Vern had not missed his second attack loop, it would have been a quartet going for the win, no doubt about it. Um, I've been a bit picky now, but uh, on the whole, an, an excellent race. Now, Jerome, you'd raced on the shortened version of the track that Formula E had used before. Obviously, we were back on the, the full sort of Grand Prix version of it. Now, what did you make about how the cars looked on that circuit? I think they were great. Um, you know, a race so animated like that in Monaco, uh, you don't see that often, and that's Formula E. Um, I was adamant that, you know, with, with the Gen 2 cars, they would, and I've, I've kind of always been, to be honest, I, that I, I had that thought already two years ago that we were, you know, the cars were fast enough and, and, and the format would allow for us to race on the on the big track. And and last weekend, uh, we proved that, you know, we proved that right. Um, I think the race, of course, for us uh, as a team, wasn't a great race. But I think in terms of Formula E, it was an amazing uh, spectacle. It was an, a great event. I mean, in what championship? You know, normally in racing, you see a guy overtaking another one and he's faster. So, so there he goes. And, and that, that move is, is the entertainment. 
apart from go karting, I don't re- recall many races in in you know in, in in racing where you have the leader swapping position you know multiple times during the race and having a, you know staying there with one another. It's it was it was you know a thrill and it was it was fantastic. It was great for Formula E. I also think conclusively uh, proved that the cars can go up the hill without running out of the battery. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was never really doubt about that. I think in the end, without getting too technical, you know, it's it's uh, the, 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 the amount of, of energy you spend and so on is relative to the time you spend on throttle. And obviously, because of the uphill, you would spend more time on throttle going uphill, but then you've got the downhill, you know, so so I think... All around, it's, uh, it, it was all fine. All right, Sam, there was one uh, late sort of a revision to the circuit with the significantly tightening up of the chicane as they came out of the tunnel. Uh, you watched trackside uh, quite a lot. One, was that the right call? And um, how was it trackside? I mean, it looked amazing when I saw the TV, four-wheel drifts and all sorts of loveliness. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a late call on the chicane. I saw them erecting it on Friday morning, actually, and the teams were told late on the Thursday evening, I believe. You know, personally, I thought it was slightly too tight and, and kind of made the whole section from the exit of that portion of the track to the finish line a, a bit of an anticlimax in some ways but you have to say that when it you know it did give a strong outbreaking area after the tunnel so we saw that move from the Costa and a few others so it, you know it did create a, a more of an opportunity for overtaking that I think the real interesting parts of the track were actually after Sandovot which was changed from an original plan to make it slightly quicker, uh, and this was this was instigated by the drivers and the FIA listened, and they changed it back to the original F1 configuration. It's probably yeah, it was definitely the right call, as I think it would have been a bit of a crash magnet for for some. Had there been no curbing, then it'd been really quick. From Sandovot up to Portier was where we saw a lot of the real action. I actually, as you mentioned, managed to escape the media center for for one race and went out to Casino and. Mirabeau for practice one with a colleague and it was thrilling I mean I, I just loved it it was I mean that that area of the track just hasn't changed in what you know almost a hundred years probably the casino Cafe de Paris the Hermitage and, and that whole lovely area of Monaco I mean it's just such a beautiful place but the, the cars themselves looked quick they actually looked quicker than I thought they would uh, a few of them brushed the barrier on the exit of Casino they were hustling it, and it was it was good to see. Uh, Robin Frines and Rene Rast were the ones who stood out, and you know gave the gave the Armco a little kiss. I think, which was you know literally, I don't know, less than a metre from where I was stood, which got my attention. Um, but the thing I think um, I and many others feared was that the attack zone area would create an element of of uh, confusion or a bit of carnage. It, it didn't really. I mean, you know, there are a few near, near misses, but that never transpired in the end. So all in all, I thought it was, it worked brilliantly and the cars looked just right for the confines. I, I thought the entertainment was terrific. Um, you know, all this comparison nonsense with Formula One was quickly dispelled. I mean, you know, and the, and these ridiculous, uh, as you said, tongue-in-cheek there, VW, these ridiculous notions of car of electric cars not getting up hills. I mean... Jerome, given the success of the event, do you think Formula E should race it every year? Well, I'd lo- certainly would love to. I think for us as a team, uh, being a Monagas team and then me being a resident here, but also for Formula E in general and for the sport, I think it's an amazing location to uh, to race at. It's such an iconic location, and we've proven that you know we can provide an amazing show here. So, it would be great if uh, if that can happen. Sam, I, I lost count of how many times the lead trio of uh, De Costa, Evans, and Frying swap places. 
great racing by the three of them. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was it was it was magical stuff. I mean, De Costa and Frines initially took turns before the attack modes kicked in, and there was an element of pace management. But the fact that Monaco has just this massive amount of jeopardy it's it's such an unforgiving nature meant that it, it was kind of hypnotic when you were watching it I mean those three were they weren't in a race of their own because you know Gunter and, and Vern and, and, and Roland even were, were were with them at most of the race but the the move of the race ultimately was Mitch Evans's uh, pass on De Costa heading up into Massonet, which was which was just tremendous. I mean, yes, De Costa gave him enough room, and there may have been a little bit of uh, pace management there, but still, to make a pass there is pretty much unheard of. And uh, Evans's right front corner was, I reckon, about three centimeters from the armco, no, no less than that. So it was just an excellent spectacle. I, I love it when you get this level of trust between drivers. You know, in Formula E, we, we, you know, we often talk about the the incidents and the, you know, there's some some roughhouse tactics that happen, but as well as that, you do get this great trust between a lot of the drivers. And De Costa and Evans are actually really good mates and, and business partners off the track as well so uh, you better believe it though that when they're on the track that's nowhere near their brains at all they're you know they're rivals just like they would be with anyone so that sort of uh, level of sporting theater is i think i think it's always uh, great when you get these this level of action between top drivers but it's also important to recognize robin frines's race i think because that was a nicely judged one, and he was one of the quickest from the get-go in in Monaco. And of course, you know he reaped the rewards ultimately at the end by taking the points lead and, and grabbing second on the line. So yeah, it, it was just a, a fantastic spectacle between those three in particular, but you know the majority of the of the field there. Jerome, the race started with a multi-car incident at the hairpin that eliminated Alexander Sims, and we saw Pascal Wehrlein riding up over the top of him. How did you see it? Is it just inevitability with that many cars bunched up in the early stages? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's it's you know it's part of racing. It's part of Formula E. But you know you see it in different categories. It happens. Sometimes it doesn't. You know I wouldn't make anything special out of it. I think for sure it's a tight corner. But you know I think they touched a bit with. Uh, don't remember who it was, but uh, touched the right front, uh, the left front wheel of a uh, of a. Uh, Alex and and he ended up in the wall and then yes if that happens there it's it's a bit tight but it wasn't like a huge chaos you know we can't compare it to for example uh, I don't know uh, burn or something like that at the start I think in the end uh, one or two cars uh, ended up finishing the race there probably one actually was just uh, Sims so yeah I don't think it's anything special just part of first lap incidents which sometimes happens. No, it wasn't exactly uh, Bruno Senna flying through the air in season one, was it? Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Jerome Antonio has been a great Formula E champion. Um, Did you think this was his best win to date? You know, from the outside, it's always difficult to judge. Um, I think as you know, he's the one that probably will will be able to answer that question. But for sure, when you win a race in Monaco, that's such a close race with with Mitch and, and, and Robin, which are also great drivers, and you're fighting all the way through that race you make a pass in the last uh, in the last corner i mean in the last lap sorry it's it's going to be right up there with one of your best uh, your best race sam we saw that late lunge from jean eric Vern. Uh, what impact did that have on proceedings as we saw there were post race protests from bmw and ds to cheetah what was that about yeah it was quite a pivotal part of the race actually um for evans and the the way that the lead 
panned out at the end. I mean, uh, I did a piece on this straight afterwards, and 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 John Eric did a a bit of a late manoeuvre on Evans going into the harbour front chicane, which compromised kind of all of their lines, and Costa slipped through and did both of them. But the Jaguar was forced to cut part of it, and Vernon got the position, but Evans kind of stayed ahead through cutting the chicane. So initially there was this sort of classic confusion as to whether Evans should defer and give the position back to, to the DS to cheat. Initially, it looked like it wasn't going to happen, but then uh, eventually Jaguar were informed uh, through Evans's uh, to Ez- Evans's engineer, um, Josep Rocker, that he had to give it back. But it was a bit of a weird one because it took so long, but Evans did so by taking the attack mode. Now, the TV cameras were a bit, bit off the pace here and actually missed it, so... He didn't really take any kind of penalty because he was going to take the attack zone anyway, and that's where Vern got through. And this had a bit of a knock-on afterwards because BMW and Tachita launched protests um, after it about this incident. So they, the, the, it was ultimately thrown out, both protests, by both of those teams. BMW because they had gone over the 30-minute allocation of registering a protest. And DS to Cheetahs, which did get in on time, was um, was discounted because the FIA saw it as Evans relinquishing the position, um, which, as we know, was taken under attack, attack mode. So it wasn't really clear. Um, it was a question as to whether Evans cutting the chicane just before Raskas as well, which was a separate incident on the last lap. Uh, I don't know. We don't know if these issues were detailed with the FIA stewards or not, because there was no, there was really no transparency and communicated publicly what happened there. So, yeah, it was. I think the FIA will look into that scenario particularly again because it needs clearing up with, uh, you know, with, let's face it, about two hundred other things in the sporting regs which need addressing. But that's a that's that's a different story. It was just a bit confusing, but yeah, ultimately it didn't matter massively. But, you know, you can see a scenario where if a similar thing happens in the future, then, you know, it could create a big, uh, a big old stink. Trent, what was the feeling in the Venturi pit after the race? Yeah, definitely. I think it wasn't our best, uh, best day. The, the frustrating part for us, I think, is that we, we know we've got, we've got the performance. Um, we've shown it since the beginning of the season. And, you know, on your home race, you always hope to... Uh, that performance to materialize into into a result, and and we were not able to do that. So I mean, as a group, what you know, we're going to regroup and 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 figure out how to how to make sure that we um, we manage to unlock that performance that we have for the second half of the season. Um, but having said that, yeah, it it was it was frustrating. It was not the the race we hoped for, but but again, you know, you've got to take Formula E is a long championship. Uh, you see in, in terms of teams and drivers, everyone's really close from one another. It's, it's one good race and you jump from P10 to P, P5 in the, in the standings. And, and it's, uh, that's the reality of it. So for us as a team, it's, it's making sure that we, as I said, that we regroup and, uh, and we try to, to make sure that, uh, that Puebla is a, is a better one for us. Sam, all the teams have now introduced their new cars and we've seen them in their normal environment. Um, what do we know about the competitive order? As ever, it's so hard to tell in Formula E. Um, you know, trying to get a hundred percent hierarchy of who's quick and where people are is just—it's almost impossible. And um, I, but you have to say, on the evidence we've seen so far this season, even though it's been 
you know, compromised by the calendar changes and and the, and the sort of different slots and homologations things. But yeah, you're right. Now we do have everybody with their new powertrains, which will see the manufacturers, everybody on the team, uh, sorry, everyone in the championship through to the end of next season, which is the final Gen 2 season of racing. But you'd have to say Mercedes, DS, Jaguar seem to have a slight advantage when when the race is running clean and you can gauge some of the pace. And then I feel there's, I suppose, uh, Audi and Envision. I don't think, certainly Audi haven't got the best out of their package yet, but I think the pace is pretty good there. Um, and Envision appear to be doing a better job than their manufacturers, which we have seen before. So that certainly has got to be addressed by, by Audi. And honestly, with it being Formula E, then, you know, there's kind of the, the rest then, you know, everybody is then has got a possibility of challenging for, for at least podiums. So, you know, I think Nissan, Venturi, Mahindra, BMW, and, and actually probably everybody, maybe bar Dragon, Penske and Neo are capable of a big result. You know, we've seen that so far. They seem to be, even the, the Dragon and the, the Neo team seem to be capable of grabbing a surprise result when conditions allow. So, yeah, really hard to get a, uh, I suppose what you call a traditional hierarchy, as you see in Formula One, as you see in you know most other championships. It's it's so tight, so hard to call, so dependent on the qualifying system as well that you know placing any kind of bet or saying there's a favourite is is almost impossible. But that's why we love Formula E, right? I mean, it's it's unique in that concept. You just don't know how to call it and uh, and it often delivers races that we saw last Saturday in Monaco. Yeah, I would make I would make a slight change to uh, to what Sam uh, said you said Sam uh, you know as ever I would say more than I would say more than ever. Um, it's so tight. It's so uh, you know it's everything else that Sam has uh, I said I pretty much agree with in in the sense that it's you know one weekend someone's got an edge over the other guys and the next weekend it's someone else but you know, if you look at how many teams have been on the podium so far and uh, how tight it is, I think we've, you know, everyone's really much up there. Everyone's got the potential in their cars and, and, and their teams, or most teams at least, I think, in, in the top 10 that have that potential. And um, and it's about who's going to manage to unlock that, that potential on, uh, you know, constantly, at least the, uh, the more consistently as, as, as possible, uh, as as consistently as possible. Sorry, and um, and then we'll we'll see. But uh, definitely, we have a great car. I think Mercedes has provided, uh, you know, come up with a great package. Uh, but everyone's really tight. So that was a dreadful race for Mercedes EQ. What happened? Yeah, it was fairly disastrous. But isn't it amazing that um, they've had two complete non-score? races in succession but still lead the team's title just by a, a few points now. Nick De Vries's day was I suppose dictated by a slightly bizarre error he made in qualifying when he caught a, a dial with his whirring gloves or, or over a bump I think maybe and not the the maximum 250 kilowatt mode down to 200. Uh, th- th- this was realised immediately but there is a 30 second reset built into the software that, that cost him hugely there and then after that he took a new gearbox and uh, other new powertrain components which meant he got a 10 second stop and go penalty as well as starting from the back so he was never really going to be in contention at all during Monaco and um, yeah it's tough tough for him but 
um, you know, when the safety car came out, he he was able to um, manage to get back uh, to some kind of, you know, to the end of the, the train. But then his fail-safe mode kicked in erroneously, and he and he parked it just by uh, just before to back in the final few laps. Van Dorn was really nowhere all day, which was, you know, he um, he did have a couple of anonymous races last year, and and this was kind of on pace he just seemed to struggle with the car in the free practice sessions his race was compromised with contact at the hairpin with that incident which uh which we saw pascal verlein decide to do a really good impression of a monster truck and, and literally ran over simsy's mahindra um which uh, i'm sure simsy didn't find particularly amusing but anyway van dorn got going again and was making a bit of progress um before i think his real axle locked after some technical issue um, and ironically pitched him into Verline. So, uh, yeah, there was a bit of um, uh, a bit more contact there and it ended both their races. So just a real weekend to forget for Mercedes. But, you know, whereas in Valencia they got away with it because none of their, let's say, rivals at the sharp end of the points table scored. Of course, Jaguar and Vision and, and DS did score big time. So their gap that they have in the team standings was was reduced hugely. Would doubleheaders making up all of the remaining races? Uh, will Mercedes be ruined the fact they've left some points on the table early season? You never want to leave points on the table in Formula E, but you also know that at one point in the season it will happen. So, you know, I think you have to look at the average over the season and not necessarily over, you know, over just one one race. And so far they've, they've done great uh, on average if you look at the first four, uh, four weekends, uh, seven races. And, and then we'll see. But yeah, I mean, formerly E in the end, and as we said earlier on, a lot of teams have the potential to to score big big points, to, to, to go on the podium, to win races. And in the end, it's down to the team that will be the most consistent. Another anonymous show from Porsche. Are you surprised by how hard they're finding it to get regular podiums and that elusive win? Not quite, no. Um, they've, they've shown flashes of, of pace, and obviously Lotterer got that strong result in in Valencia, and Verlang, um did likewise in in Diria. They, they've been in some good positions, but just don't seem to be able to finish the job off. Uh, Monaco was probably their least representative or least um, just consistent and, and, and sparky performance, really. They just didn't seem to, to be there. And as you say, slightly anonymous which is a, a bit of a surprise because, you know, their second season of Formery, I think people expected a bit more of Porsche. Um, you know, they, they've had some misfortune. As I said, you know, Verline was involved in that first corner, sorry, first lap incident with the hairpin, and that spoiled his race. Lotterer was coming through pretty strongly, and but just got overly aggressive on the last corner and uh, wiped out Degrassi, and I think maybe more, more Tara. We missed it, actually. Sadly, uh, we didn't see that. There was no replays, but there was obviously a bit of a, uh, a bit of a ding dong in the last corner as everything concertinaed up, and Lotterer got a penalty and dropped outside of the points. So they kept, came away with zero points in Monaco, and you know there'll be a big debrief and, and a bit of an investigation as to how things are going. I think in this gap now to Puebla, which is a very important gap for Porsche. Of course, they you know they can't do any testing. They've exhausted their testing requirements. They, they might do a film day potentially, um, and everything's homologated outside of the, you know, some some of the suspension and the uh, software elements. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they're going to do if they're going to regroup 
let's not discount them because, as we've seen, that they can get into Super Bowl and they can mount a credible podium or even race-winning challenge. But for whatever reason, it's just not happening and, and gelling properly there. So it'd be very interesting to see what they can achieve in the in the second half of the season once it begins in Mexico. Jerome, next we're off to a new venue in Puebla in Mexico. It's not the version some of our listeners might recall from the WTCC. Can you tell us a little bit more about the venue? Well, I, I haven't been there personally. Um, so, you know, it's going to be, we're going to discover the, the, the track. We haven't, of course, we don't have it yet in a simulator and so on. So, there is not much I can tell you apart from what I heard, which is you know supposed to, to, to be a, a great event preparing there. Um, and, and, and it's supposed to be in also a very nice city. It's actually quite a big city. Uh, I think 7 million uh, inhabitants there, so quite, quite big. Um, and then let's see. But again, I haven't been there, so not much I can, uh, I can tell you about it. Uh, Sam, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, who's going to be quick in Mexico? Well, you're asking the you're asking the impossible here, to be. I think yeah, Puebla's gonna be interesting. It's obviously gonna be extremely hot. I mean Mexico in the middle of summer uh is, is not gonna be um pleasant. It's it's quite a barren landscape around there. The track is flat. Um there is an oval element, but you know, we've seen a version of the track that may be used. Um you know, it, it will have a certain feeling similar to Valencia, I think. Uh, it is a permanent facility, permanent track. I think the the surface is quite abrasive, so the, you know there'll be elements of uh, a Formula E, traditional Formula E race, I suppose. But who's going to come out on top there? I mean, you know, from what we saw in Valencia, Jaguar did struggle in Valencia, so it'd be interesting to see how Jaguar manage um things in Mexico I think you know that was the the one blot on their season is Valencia they just weren't weren't at the races there uh, Mercedes were were strong but you know we 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 won't presume that there's going to be any um any sort of variation in the conditions it's probably going to be hot dusty and 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 difficult to manage a lot of the thermal temperatures so Impossible to say, really. I think we don't know enough about the track. They, you know, they won't get the sim data until a few weeks before Puebla. Uh, but it's important. It's going to be a vitally important one. You know, there's there's sixty points up for grabs uh, over that weekend. So, with every event now until the end of the season at Berlin in August being double headers, you know, the teams are going to have to be completely on it. And you know, there may even you may even get some variables such as um, penalties. You know, that you get a certain amount of uh, components to use in the powertrain cluster. And, you know, some of them are going to start racking up changes. We've seen De Vries use a variety of different components. So, you know, if, if they start having any reliability issues in their powertrain uh, powertrain clusters, then they're, they're going to start taking penalties, which can affect your momentum and, and ultimately affects a, a championship challenge. So, um, yeah, but, you know, trying to pick one of the, the drivers or even the teams to, to win there is, is just not, it's actually just not possible. We've never been there before. Nobody has raced. I don't think anyone's raced there before at, at all. Any of the drivers, I'd have to check that, but I can't think of anyone who would have been doing world touring cars uh, back then. So, and you know, we don't have any Mexican national drivers in it. So 
I can't think anyone has actually been there before. So it's going to be fascinating and, you know, something new. At least we have a race in Mexico. We all love going to the Hermanos Rodriguez. Certainly Jerome does after his win there back in <laughs> 20, uh, 2016 and he had some other good races there too. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's just going to be nice to be to see the to see the championship uh, staying consistent and racing in Mexico, hopefully going back to Hermanos Rodriguez in 2022. Uh, Jerome, you mentioned at the top of the show that you stepped away from the cockpit, hung up your helmet, as it were. Is that a permanent decision, or could you be tempted back to race in the, I don't know, Monaco Historic or Goodwood Members Meeting, for example? Uh, no, so <laughs> short, uh, short answer. I'm I've completely hanged up my helmet. Um, look, I, you know, I really love what I do, my new, uh, my new role, and and seeing, you know, being involved in the sport that I that I love so much. And I think it's there's a time for everything in life, and and if you turn a page, you you gotta turn it and and focus fully on your new uh, new goals. And this is what I'm doing. Um, having said that, I'm you know I might go a odd day with with uh, I did actually once this year with Norman. Uh, we went uh, go karting uh, one morning. You know I, I'll do that if I have a day off or something like that. It's 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 fun and so on. But in any professional capacity or or dedicating, you know, proper time to, to, to anything like that. Absolutely not. This is, this is behind for me now. And, and what I'm doing now is, uh, is my present and, and hopefully my future. By, by the way, you said hanging up your helmet, uh, V2V. Jerome last season changed his helmet and it was one of the coolest helmets <laughs> I've ever seen. I it came, was amazing. I came actually back to my original design, but of back in 2000 and, and 2005. And then I, I, made it yeah. a bit more modern and so on. But I thought, you know, I don't know if I felt it. It was going to be my last season or something like that. But I just wanted to go back to my original design. And and, uh, and thank you, uh, Sam. Oh, it's great. Yeah, a bit of, it sort of reminded me of a bit of Jackie X because there's a lot of black in it. But obviously the, the Belgian flag is just one of the best in terms of um, transposing it onto a helmet design. I mean, I, you know, I don't need to... I don't need to give any more evidence than Stefan Beloff, and although he was German, but you know, you know what I mean. That those kind of colours, but you know, Thierry Bootsen obviously had a a similar kind of de- design in his helmet, and, and of course Jackie. So it just stood out. I thought it was great. It stood out when there are so many helmets around, which are you know just a bit of a a bit of a mishmash and a mess. It was it was great to know there was you know only one. Only one Jerome D'Ambrosio, help, almost slightly retro helmet, as you said. So, uh, yeah. Very much retro, that. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Sam, and great to have you here with us, Jerome. We wish you and the Venturi team all the very best for the remainder of the season. Um, please remember to keep up to date with all of Sam's news from the Formula E paddock on the-race.com. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts from Formula One, MotoGP, and IndyCar. Um, Sam, we've even managed to get through this whole pod without mentioning Bristol Rovers' relegation to League Two after a dire campaign. Um, So on that slightly sour note, I'll say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.